need some sexual healing in our marriages or maybe even not in our marriages. We might need some purity healing today and that's our prayer that God would be able to bring that through his word. If you're just joining us today, we're in a series we're calling Offensive Sex. And my wife Melody's been joining me and helping me teach. It's been a lot of fun getting to do this together. What we've discovered in the word of God is that sex originally was designed to bless us. In Genesis chapter 1, the very beginning, God looked at Adam and Eve and it says he blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. He blessed them and said, go have sex. Uh, And so it was designed to be a blessing. Now our culture has corrupted it. So many of us have been damaged and hurt in the area of sex as we've stepped outside of God's authority and God's design. But we want to restore that. We want to get back to the place that God originally designed for this to be. So through this series, if you have questions related to something we're talking about or just related to the area of sex in general, you can text message those questions in anonymously at 662-404-2489. And we're going to be fielding one of those questions at the end of every message. Um, and next week, we've had so many good questions come in we haven't been able to get to. Next week, we're just going to kind of park on those questions for quite a while. We're going to be taking quite a few questions next week that have come through the last few weeks and, and answer those uh, because we feel like, man, you guys have got some great questions. There's some real legitimate need. There's some real legitimate things you're going through. And we want to help you to, to understand what God's word has to say about those things. So even if you text in and we don't get your question today, it doesn't mean we're not going to be able to get to it next week. So text those questions in. So if you weren't here last week, last week we gave our married couples a challenge. And, and let me say this. When we talk about sex in this series, unless otherwise noted, we're talking specifically in the confines of marriage. We believe that God designed sex to be in a marriage covenant between a husband and a wife. And so when we talk about sex, that's what we're saying. So we challenged our married couples last week to take the sex experiment. The sex experiment is actually a book written by pastors Ed and Lisa Young from Dallas. And they wrote this book challenging Christian godly married couples to have sex every day for a week, seven consecutive days of sex. So we issued that challenge to you last week. So maybe you started it and hopefully you saw some progress and some growth in your intimacy and in your marriage and in your sex life. And if you haven't seen any progress or growth, we're going to be talking about some of the reasons why maybe you did not. So this week's challenge we're going to give to you up front, and we are telling all of our married couples to get naked. And we're actually talking about spiritually naked. Ooh, you can breathe. <laughs> you, hopefully you got naked last week too, but... One of the main reasons some married couples don't have sex or don't have sex often is because sex requires spiritual nakedness. It requires honesty, transparency, and openness. Sex requires us to be known. Don't get us wrong. You can go get wasted at the club, go home with some random person that you meet, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, hit it and quit it, not know their name, and send them on their way. That can happen. You can have sex without being known, but that's not the way God designed for it to happen. But the more sex you have with someone, the more you let them into your world, the more you let them behind your mask. So why on earth would your pastors tell you to have sex for seven straight days? We want you to have sex that frequently because you can't have sex with the same person for seven days in a row without opening up to them. It forces you to share, it forces you to communicate, and it forces you to be honest. It forces you to get naked. 
So here's the thing that we need to remember about marriage. And even before I get to that, let me say this. If you didn't take the challenge last week, the challenge is open. Take it this week. If you started last week and, and didn't finish, man, we really encourage you to, to, to make this happen. I, we really believe it's going to be a blessing in your marriage. Uh, but God designed marriage to be a mirror so that when I look at Melody, what I see back is a reflection of myself at my best and at my worst. When she looks at me, what she sees back is a reflection of herself at her best and at her worst. So this week, you're not just going to get naked, but you're going to get naked in front of the marriage mirror. Uh, in other words, before this can ever be about teaching your spouse what you want or what you need, it's got to be about allowing God to speak to you, about for you to learn about yourself, about for you to learn about the mistakes maybe that you're making, the flaws that maybe you have in this area of intimacy. So when you have a bad hair day or maybe you're feeling fat or whatever, you don't want to look in the mirror that day. You might avoid the mirror all day long. You are mad at the mirror. You're terrified of looking at it because you're afraid of what you might see. And the marriage mirror is the same way. Sometimes married couples run from intimacy. They run from getting close to each other because they're afraid of what might reflect back at them. Push through it. I understand. It's scary. But look into the mirror anyway. Get close to each other anyway, even if you don't like the reflection that you see. So, Mel, when you look in this mirror right here, what do you see? Um, Some pimples, some frizzy hair. It's kind of how it works, right? You see the worst things first. That's not what I see when I look at Melody. I don't see the flaws. I see how beautiful she is. I see how much I'm blessed to have her in my life. But when we look at the mirror, a lot of times the first thing that jumps out is, oh, man, how can that hair be out of place? Oh, my gosh, why didn't anybody tell me I've got that booger hanging out, right? Like that. We notice the worst things about ourselves first. And the marriage mirror can be the same way, man, that, that we see the flaws first when we look at it. And so when you look into the marriage mirror, which is your spouse, you see your flaws in the same way. So when I look at Troy, I see that he's full of grace and he's really good at forgiving and it comes natural and easy to him. And because I see that, it reflects back to me and it it reminds me that, hey, I'm not so good at forgiving. So it's good because it reveals my flaw and then Troy can help me, you know, fix my flaw. So when, when we're using a regular mirror correctly, you're using it a lot of times with the intention of finding out what's wrong. Oh, man, my tie's crooked. Oh, man, this, this thing's not buttoned up the right way. Like, we're looking for the flaw so that we can fix it. So when you look in the marriage mirror this week, I encourage you, look for the flaw. Don't look away from it. Don't try to ignore it. Don't try to brush it off. Look at, okay, what am I doing wrong? What area do I not measure up to what God has called me to be? Um, what are the things that are off in your marriage? Now, before we go any further, I, I want to make sure that we address this. There's three things, at least, maybe some more, that, that may be evident in your marriage, that may have been in your past or maybe recent in your marriage. And if you have those things, your mirror is going to be broken. It's going to be cracked. Um, and you're going to need to get immediate help. And those three things are abuse, betrayal, and neglect. If you've abused your spouse or been abused, if you've betrayed your spouse or been betrayed, if there's been cheating, if there's been infidelity, if there's been total spiritual neglect, emotional neglect, sexual neglect, the the mirror's going to be broken. It's going to be fractured. And those are situations where, yes, we can walk you through some things, and we're going to today. We can help you. We can pray for you. But you're going to need more than that. You're going to need some professional help. You're going to need to sit down with a, with a professional marriage counselor, Christian, biblically based, and have them help walk you through some of these things. Because if not, that fracture is not going to go away. That mirror is going to remain cracked. Um, and so you need to address that and address it quickly. Don't procrastinate it. Don't put it off. Those are the big bad wolves of marriage, and we don't want to let them destroy your marriage. So we've been reading through the book of Song of Solomon um, as in this series as a guide for biblical sex and we gave you a challenge the first week to read Song of Solomon with your husband or with your uh, wife and to read it out loud with each other 
So in Song of Solomon 2.15, it says, Catch for us the foxes, the little foxes that ruin the vineyards, our vineyards that are in bloom. So the vineyard is symbolic of the marriage. Uh, and Solomon's saying, man, we need to catch those foxes. We need to get those things out. So most of the time, it's not the big bad wolves that destroy marriage. It's not abuse, betrayal, and neglect, at least not at first. It's the little fox that creeps in, that, that begins to go to work, that begins to gnaw away at the stem, begins to gnaw away at what's keeping you together. And those foxes are really easy to ignore. They're really easy to justify. They're really easy to overlook. So today, we're going to get in your business, uh, and we're going to start to deal with some of those little foxes that sneak in under the fence that are gnawing away at the core of Christian marriages. So today, we're going to show you six little foxes that can kill the intimacy and the sex in your marriage. So the first one is selfishness. Philippians 2, 3 through 4, 3 through 4 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. We love this passage. In fact, this is our vision for our marriage, that we would look to the interests of one another, that we would do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider each other better than ourselves. Now, when I say this is our vision for our marriage, I'm not saying that we're there because it's a long way off. But this is what we strive for. This is what we want our family to be built upon, this principle of unselfishness. Selfishness essentially is simply just not putting the needs of your spouse above your own. And what you need to understand is selfishness is the default. This is part of our human condition. My life revolves around me. Your life revolves around you. It is natural. It is normal, but that doesn't mean it's godly or that it's right. We've got to allow the Holy Spirit to bring us beyond that place of selfishness. So a lot of times this happens because sometimes our parents, as kids, man, they, they make life revolve around us. So we kind of get to that place where it's real easy. Uh, and then when we get single, whether uh, if we live on our own, then everything revolves around us. It's my schedule, my habits, my needs, my wants, my financial priorities. Everything's about me. And then I get married. And now it's not just about me anymore. Now there's somebody else who's affected by my schedule. There's somebody else who's affected by my wants. There's somebody else who's affected by my financial priorities. And the Bible says that I need to not just consider her, but I actually need to put her first. I need to consider her needs greater than my needs. So how does this flush out in the practical? Um, I'll give you one example. Um, I'm not good at putting my clothes in the hamper. I don't know why. This is so difficult for me. But I come home, and, man, my, my pants are on the floor, right? So this doesn't bother me. This doesn't upset me. This doesn't stress me out. It's fine. It's the bedroom. Nobody's going to see it. It's good. But it stresses her out. Uh, it drives her crazy. And so when I selfishly, and I'm still in this mode, so I'm working through this. I'm preaching to myself right now. But when I selfishly don't put my laundry where it goes, I'm causing a problem. I'm causing friction. I'm causing stress and pressure on my wife. And those are the kind of things that are going to destroy our intimacy if I'm not careful. If I don't get it fixed, those are the kind of things that are going to begin to divide us, begin to split us. Um, that's another example. This is one that, that we've seen in, in so many marriages that we've talked to where the marriage is on the rocks or, or maybe even going through divorce. But one really common denominator we found is that husband and wife don't go to bed together. Um, and I'm not just talking about, like, husband works nights and wife works days. I understand those situations. If you can avoid it, I'd recommend avoiding it because I think there's a lot of power in being in bed together. But, but I'm talking about the wife gets tired at 930 and she goes to bed and the husband stays up till 2 watching Sports Center or playing Xbox or whatever that situation might be. Uh, and, and it's really easy to justify once, twice. But what we found is that in a lot of marriages that are falling apart, that's the habit. 
That's the default. That's the norm. And so we've set it a, a priority, a goal for us that we're going to be in bed together almost every night. And this is not easy because Melody wants to go to sleep by 10 o'clock, and I'm awake until like 1 Easy. I've got to force myself to go away, to go to sleep before that most of the time. Um, so it's not normal for me to be in bed that early. But I want to be with my wife. Because what do we find out, man? In our bed, that's where she opens up her heart and shares it with me. I'm not just talking about sex. I'm talking about just conversation. That's where she can, man, here's, here's what I'm going through. Here's what I'm struggling with. There's something peaceful and secure about being in the bed together. She knows where I am. She knows I'm not looking at something on the Internet. She knows I'm not out talking to somebody, hitting somebody up. I'm not connecting with some old flame on Facebook. She knows where I am, and she has security and safety in that. Now, this can work the other way, too. Sometimes you actually have to stay awake for your spouse. Uh, Last Wednesday, Wednesdays are my really long day. I got like three hours sleep Tuesday night, got up before 5, and I was at the church from 5.45 a.m. until 9.30 p.m. So I was here all days. We have our men's group. We had 662 Youth Ministry, had other stuff going on throughout the day. So I was exhausted. I got home about 10, and I was looking forward from about 5 p.m. until 10. I just could not wait to get home and hit the bed. That was all I could think about. I am going to sleep, and I'm going to sleep early. So I get home, and I go to bed at 10 p.m., and what do I find in my bed? I find a woman who likes to go to sleep at 10 who is wide awake and who needs to connect because she's been with Judah all day. She's been taking care of other stuff, and she needs her husband. Uh, and so she starts talking, and not just talking, I mean sharing. And I'm like, baby, please, can we talk about this another day? This is what I'm thinking. I didn't voice it, thankfully. Um, there were so many times I, I literally thought I could just fall asleep right now and apologize tomorrow. Um, like that was the temptation that I could just let it go. And so I remember I had to like force myself up because I was laying down and I was going to be out. And I was like, no, I'm not going to let this happen. She needs me. So I'm going to force myself to get up. So we had a conversation for about an hour. So I lost about an hour of sleep. Uh, but you know what? I saved my, I didn't save my marriage. It's not like we were going to get divorced, so I went to sleep. But what I'm saying is uh, I protected my marriage. I protected our bond. I protected our intimacy. I prioritized my wife. And that is something I'm not really good at doing on a regular basis. But there's one example of a time where I was able to walk it out. Remember Genesis says the two have become one. In other words, when you get married, your stuff doesn't just affect you. It affects somebody else. The decisions you make don't just affect you. They affect your spouse. And so we've got to push beyond selfishness. That's our first fox. The second little fox, the second thing that can destroy our intimacy in marriage is poor communication. And Proverbs is one of my favorite books of the Bible, and it has a lot to say about communicating. Look at Proverbs 18.2. It says, A fool finds no pleasure in understanding but delights in airing his own opinions. So this is like if you're talking to someone like your spouse or whoever, and you're not really listening to them because all you're thinking about is, when are they going to pause so I can insert my two cents? So also look in Proverbs 18.21. It says, the tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. It's not explicitly a marriage verse, but I think it totally applies to marriage. The way you communicate is going to bring life or death into your marriage. Communication is massively important. Yeah, and Troy always says to people, he says it's better to over-communicate than to under-communicate. And it's funny because he says that all the time, so it's good. But one area where poor communication can really harm your marriage is conflict resolution. So maybe you have a disagreement with your spouse and you lose your temper and you walk away or maybe you're passive-aggressive. But we've got to recognize our own tendencies and look in the mirror and then work on them. That brings us to our third intimacy killer, which is unrealistic expectations. All right. So 
we get offended a lot of times when somebody does something to us. But ultimately, those offenses, those times we're upset, those times when we're mad at our spouse, they're not so much flowing out of what they did to us as they are flowing out of what they did to us relative to what we expected. Let me illustrate this for you. So today, you get inspired, and you decide that you're a husband. You decide, you know what? I'm going to do something good for my wife after service. I'm going to bless her. So you take her out to lunch after service, and you go to McDonald's to buy her the best value meal that there is. You're doing it right. So you go to McDonald's, and you order your value meal, and the guy behind the counter kind of nonchalantly hands you a cup for you to go fill up your drink. Um, Now, you might be a little annoyed because the guy doesn't care about you, but you're not offended that you have to fill up your own drink because that's the expectation at a fast food restaurant. But if you really actually do it right and you go out to Ruth's Chris after service and you're going to buy a $50 steak and you sit down with your wife and you order a Coke and the guy brings you an empty cup and a two liter of Coke and says, fill it up, you're going to be ticked, right? Why? Because you're too good to fill your own drink? No, you're not too good to fill your own drink. It's because your expectation was up here. So our offense doesn't really flow out of what somebody does to us. Our offense flows out of what someone does to us relative to what we expect. So let me give you an example from our marriage. When we got married, I was 28 years old. I'd been washing dishes most of my life. This was one of our main chores when we were kids. Mom trained us how to wash dishes the Souden way. We had a system. We loaded the dishwasher a certain way. We washed the dishes a certain way. And I thought it was the way everybody washed dishes. And we got married, and my wife comes in, and she washes dishes, number one, with more frequency with me. I wasn't upset about that. Praise God for that. Uh, but she didn't load the dishwasher right. She didn't do it our way. And I would be so upset when I would find the dishes, they're not in here, right? What are you doing? Uh, instead of being grateful that my wife is washing the dishes, praise God, um, I'm upset that she's not washing them the right way. Why? Because my expectations were that everybody washes dishes this way. This is the way that it's done. This is the way it's supposed to be done. So you've got to deal with and identify your expectations in marriage. Most of the time when you're upset with your spouse, it's not really upset at something they did. It's that you're upset at something they did because it's not what you expected. Because it's not the thing that you think, man, a wife should do or a husband should do. Or it's not the thing that you think is going to happen. So communicate your expectations, but identify them. Figure out what they are. Um, Now, we're talking about sex, so let's talk about unreasonable expectations. If you're a young man and you're not married and you heard about the sex experiment last week and your expectation and your thought is, well, why would you even need to do that? Married people have sex every day anyway, right? Um, That is an unreasonable expectation. That is not normal. Let me just let it break it down easy for you right now. That's not going to happen. Uh, So identify those unreasonable expectations. Find out what is reasonable. Find out, you know what, well, maybe I thought we were going to have sex every day, and that's not really true. What is normal for us? What is the reasonable expectation for us to have? That way you can, you can hold each other accountable. I'm not saying to never get upset. I'm not saying to think that, you know, anything they do is okay. But you've got to figure out what is a reasonable expectation first. Number four, fox that you need to identify, and this is where we might start stepping on some people's toes, is the fox of what we call the child-centered home. As a pastor, this is one of the things that I am most concerned about in this generation for Christian families. Like with so many things in life, parenting has two ditches. has a ditch over here of neglect. Um, And and this is a a ditch that is so common. As a youth pastor, somebody who's been in youth ministry for over the last decade, can I tell you the damage that neglecting your kid does? I've seen so many young people who don't have a dad in their life. I've seen so many young people who, who mom and dad are still together, but they go out drinking every night, and the kid has to raise himself. I've seen so many young people who, who man, they're just left to the Xbox or to the television, and technology is expected to raise them. Um, 
As parents, we are called and purposed by God to pour into our kids, to love our kids, to be there for our kids, to prioritize our kids, to train them up in the way we should go. Neglecting those duties is absolutely wrong. It's sinful and it's damaging. So there's a ditch over here. But there's a ditch over on the other side too. And this one's also very common but not nearly as well known. And it's the ditch of what we call the child-centered home. What do I mean by this? Well, this thing has kind of emerged as a trend in the last 20 to 30 years as an overcorrection. Basically, people are aware, hey, I'm not going to neglect my kids. I'm going to love my kids. I'm going to take care of my kids. And instead of coming to to the straight and narrow that, that God has laid out for us, we come too far in the other direction. So husbands, wives, men, women, hear me on this and hear me clearly. God's design for you is to entrust you with your kids for a season, but to entrust you with your spouse for life. This is God's best. Now, all of us know situations where this doesn't happen. But this is God's goal, that you would have your children for a season, but you would have your spouse for life. Your kids are going to leave. They're supposed to. Amen, right? Like, they're not going to live with you when they're 42, right? This is what we want. Psalm 127 talks about how a child is like the arrow in the hand of a mighty warrior. This is the picture that God paints for us. What does a mighty warrior do with an arrow? He launches it out into the world, right? That's what God's picture of parenting is supposed to be. We're not holding on to our kids. We're training them up to launch them out into the world, to impact the world for the glory of God. That should be our purpose as a parent. That should be every parent's goal, every parent's uh, objective. That's the picture that God gives us. But he doesn't give us that picture for our spouse. I'm not going to launch Melody out into the world. Melody's going to be with me until death do us part. That's God's call for our marriage. Um, and so the priorities are a little bit different. So here's what happens, and we've seen this in so many people that we know. Mom and dad put all their energy, all their focus, all their time, the entire family, they, the schedule revolves around the kids, the lives revolve around the kids, the, the finances, the budget revolves around the kids, everything revolves around the kids, and then the kids graduate and leave home. And what happens? Mom and dad look at each other, and they realize that this newfound empty nest doesn't have anything to offer them because they don't know each other anymore because they're not close anymore. And it happened so slowly and so gradually they didn't even realize while it was happening that they were drifting apart. But what's happened is they've overcorrected, they've overprioritized the kids, and they forgot to pursue each other. And this is happening all the time, all the time, all the time. I can't tell you how many people that I love people that I believe in, people who love God, who within a year or two of their kid graduating high school have gotten divorced. That shocked me. It broke my heart. But it's exactly what happened is they put everything into the kids, and now that the kids are gone, now that the foundation of the marriage is no longer there, the marriage collapses on itself. So how do we fix this? We're not going to go back to the other ditch of neglect. We're not going to neglect our kids. We're going to love our kids. We're going to be there for our kids. But what do we do? Well, we consistently choose to make our spouse a higher priority than our kids. We're not going to let them take on an unhealthy significance. So let me bring this to the real world, not just talk ideas and theories. Real world. Okay, what do we see this happen in? Well, one is kids' extracurricular activities, especially sports. Kid gets in sports, plays soccer, karate, baseball, whatever the thing might be, and the family starts sacrificing everything for that sport. They're going to sacrifice all their finances. They're going to sacrifice date night. We don't have time to go on a date. We've got baseball 17 nights a week. I don't even know how there's that many nights in a week, but that's what we've got, right? Um, they begin to even sacrifice church so that their kids can play a game. 
Um, yes, sacrifice for your kids. Yes, do things to bless your kids. I'm not telling you not to sacrifice for them. But real, you got to think big picture. What's the best thing for your kid 20 years from now? Is that he played in every single baseball tournament? Or is the best thing for your kid 20 years from now that he knows Jesus? That he loves Jesus, that he's had a godly example in his mom and dad, that we're going to put God first in everything that we do. That's the thing that we need to keep is our perspective, our long-term goal and priority for our kids. Yeah, and I just want to say that your kid's probably not going to be a professional soccer player. He's, he or she's probably not going to be the best ballerina, but you are going to want your kid to love Jesus forever. That's right. Uh, so that's the first priority. The second thing that you could do for your kids, this is what my dad used to always tell me as a kid. My whole life growing up, dad looked at me, and this was usually when I wanted something that was different than what mom wanted. He would say, you know, the best thing I can ever do for you, Troy, is to love your mom. And he would choose mom over me, and I hated it. Hated it. Why would you do that? But here's what I have now. Now I'm 34 years old. My parents have been married almost 36 years. And I have a son that when we go to see grandma and grandpa for Christmas, we go to the same house. What a gift. My parents aren't perfect. They don't have it all figured out. But I get to take my kid to see grandma and grandpa. I get to put him on one telephone to talk to grandma and grandpa at the same time. What an incredible blessing that my parents have given me. I wouldn't trade the baseball tournament that I missed out on. For my parents not being together, I wouldn't. It means so much to me that they are. And I don't mean to, to hurt somebody because I know a lot of your parents probably aren't. And I'm not trying to criticize. Maybe you're, maybe you're a parent who has split up from your spouse and you've divorced. I'm not trying to put guilt or condemnation on anybody. What I am trying to say is this is God's best. And we need to strive for God's best. We need to value and prioritize our spouse. Another thing that's really on trend right now that, that's really big is there's all this research out there, and, and I'm not denying the research or the science behind it, but there's all this research that says that emotionally it's better for your child to sleep in the same bed with mom and dad, and I get that, and, and I'm, I'm sure that it is. It's better for them emotionally, better for them psychologically, um, but, but here's what I know. I've got a friend who hasn't slept in the bed with his wife for almost two years because the kid sleeps in the bed and cries all night, and he sleeps on the couch so he can go to work. And that's not okay. That's not okay. The kids' emotional needs do not supersede the needs of the marriage. They just don't. I'm not saying, man, there's going to be a time when Judah has a nightmare and he comes running into our room and he's going to sleep in the bed with us. I'm not trying to get legalistic about this. I'm not trying to say never have your kid. But, but what I am saying is what's the best thing for Judah? The best thing for Judah is for us to be close. It just is. We can nurture him emotionally in other ways. Uh, and so he doesn't sleep in the bed with us. Uh, and, and that might be real personal, and you might really hate me because I said that because that's the way you're going to do it. And you got to answer to God for the choices you make. You don't answer to me. But, man, I would really encourage you to evaluate that uh, because it's, it's going to infringe on your intimacy. You can't have those deep conversations when you got a kid in the bed with you all the time. You can't have sex when you got a kid in the bed with you all the time. Or at least you probably shouldn't have sex when your kid's in the bed with you all the time. Just saying. Um, so uh, now, now we'll, we'll get the spotlight off of you and put it back on us. How does this flesh out in our marriage? Well, I adore my son, right? Like Judah is awesome. Go ahead. I think I got a picture of him. You can see. This is Judah if you've never seen him. All right. That, that, that's our mess of a son. Um, and sometimes I just look at him and I'm like, dude, you are my favorite person in the world. Like, you are perfect in every way. I love you so much. And I'll find myself saying things where I'm saying he's better than his mom. Like, I'm not saying you're better than mom, but I'm saying you're my favorite person in the world. I'm saying I love you more than anything. And if I'm saying that, what am I declaring? 
I'm declaring to him, I'm declaring to myself, I'm declaring to her that you're now second place. So I have to catch myself saying that. And it's not easy because, man, look at that face. Like, you're freaking awesome, kid. Uh, like, I love you so much. Uh, but, but I'm not going to let that even become the norm in my house. I'm not going to let that become the norm in my speech that I'm telling my son he's, he's above his mother. Uh, and so I have to catch myself. And I'm like, now is what I say is, Dude, you're my favorite guy. You're my favorite guy. I don't know what I'm going to do when I have another kid. But for right now, this works. Uh, you're my favorite guy. Because he is. And I love him more than any other guy in the world. Um, another way this, this is, man, I'll come home from work. And Mel will be sitting on the couch sometimes with Judah. Uh, and I rush up to greet and kiss Judah. Because, uh, man, I'm so excited to see him. And sometimes I have to catch it, and sometimes she catches it for me. It's like, no, you're going to greet me first. Like, you're going to greet the wife. Who's the priority here? Um, and, and, yes, she may not be that. Uh, she might not be 20, 18 pounds of just amazing, awesome snot and everything else that Judah is. Uh, but she's my wife, and I love her. And I'm going to continue to love her, and I'm going to show her that I love her. So I'm going to greet her first. I'm going to kiss her first. I'm going to, I'm going to hug her first. And then I'm going to love on my kid. I'm not, not, I'm not saying don't love on your kid because I freaking adore mine. But I'm going to make sure that just in those little things, remember, these are little foxes. You might say none of this stuff really matters. My wife knows that she's a bigger priority. Does she? Maybe she does now. But what happens when there's five years of that? What happens when there's 15 years of that? What happens when there's 20 years of that? It's a little fox, and we're going to deal with those little foxes now to protect our marriage later. And when you have a child-centered home, a lot of times your kids can grow up to be narcissists because they think the whole world revolves around them. And I know we all know adults who never grew out of that. But when you have kids for the first time, your roles change. So you become not just a wife, not just a husband, but now you're a mom and a dad. And I think a lot of times, you know, as women, we take off that wife hat and we put the mom hat on and then we never, ever put that wife hat back on. So I think, you know, it needs to be Christ follower first, wife, and then mom. And, you know, we're not telling you to neglect neglect your kids at all. There's a lot of immediate needs that are going to come when you have kids. You know, if your kid's crying because he's hungry or if your kid's crying because, you know, he crashed his bike into a tree and you need to take him to the ER. We're not saying not to neglect your kids or take care of those immediate needs. We're just um, trying to remind you, I guess, to, you know, make sure that you're Christ follower first, then you're a wife or a husband, then you're a mom and you're a dad. And we know plenty of great dads out there who are terrible husbands. And we know plenty of great moms who are terrible wives. So remember, you're a husband first and then a dad. You're a wife first and then a mom. Awesome. Great, great stuff. Um, The number five little fox to be aware of, uh, and this one's going to apply more to guys, but certainly probably to some women too, is the little fox of lust. Lust is so prevalent in our culture. Um, this is something that, that's been a part of the human condition for forever, which is way more accessible now. There's just way more stuff that we have to feed it at our fingertips. It's so easy. If you've got a lust issue, it is so easy to feed it, feed it, feed it, feed it all the time now. And this is so destructive to intimacy. Lust is essentially just dwelling on a thought about someone having some, some experience with them that is 
not designed for you, that, that's not in marriage. Uh, so, so it could be, man, thinking about a body part. It could be thinking about a sexual experience. Um, it, it could be just, just dwelling on somebody who's not your mate, having a fantasy about somebody who's not your mate. So we need to be aware and cautious of lust, man. We, we need to fight it. We need to take care of it. One of the first things you can do if you struggle with this, and, and statistically, there's going to be a lot of guys in this room that struggle with this right now. Uh, so first of all, let me say you're not alone. Don't feel like, man, I've got to hide this. This is this great secret, and everybody's going to think I'm this huge pervert if they just knew. Man, know that, that this is a huge thing in our culture, and we want to help you fix it, but you got to work on it. So first thing is 2 Corinthians 10 teaches us how we can take our thoughts captive. It says that we need to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. So you're cruising down the road, and there's a billboard, and some girl's stuff's hanging out, and your mind immediately goes there, right? Because we're, we're visual, guys, and that's where our mind goes. Man, and as soon as that happens, as soon as you realize it, God, forgive me for, for beginning to entertain that thought. God, thank you that you created that girl in your image. And I pray that you bring her closer to you. If you start praying for that girl instead of lusting over her, that's going to dry it up real quick. Right? Like, all of a sudden, it's like, okay, yeah, there's a bigger picture here. Um, one of the things when my dad came to Christ, one of the first things that he did when, when he got saved is he took, and this was a long time ago, so they had magazines, they didn't have internet. So he took all his, his, his porn magazines and he threw them in the fireplace. And he said, as, as they burned up, he said, all of a sudden, those same girls that I had been consumed with lust for, all of a sudden I was consumed with compassion for them. What an awesome testimony. And I believe that that's possible. Even if you're a godly person today, you're a Christian today, and you just got this area, begin to, to see compassion for those people rather than lust towards them. Secondly, uh, Internet pornography is obviously the, the greatest scourge in this area right now. It's the greatest temptation. you got to go to war with it. You got to fight it. You got to put up parameters, uh, things in place to keep you from getting there. What we recommend is a system called X3 Watch. You can go to x3watch.com, um, and there's something you can download for your computer, for your tablet, for your phone, uh, any any device you have that you struggle to bring pornography onto. Download this, um, and what it's going to do, it's going to send out accountability reports. You set up accountability partners. So you choose uh, some some people, same gender, probably older than you, more mature in the faith than you, uh, that. I, and you go to them and don't just sign them up and then they get a report and like, what is this? Uh, <laughs> let them know, hey, I've got, I've got a challenge in this area. I need you to hold me accountable. Uh, and so they're going to get something in their email. Um, I recommend set it up for weekly. You'll have a choice, but set it up weekly. So every week, if you go to questionable sites, they're going to get a report. They're going to know what you went to and they're going to be able to stick it in, man, what are you doing? Uh, and they're going to be able to help. So just the fact that you have to process that, that you have to think through, man, somebody's going to know, that defeats 90% of it right there. Not all of it. I'm not saying this is going to, all you got to do is get X3 watch and you'll never be tempted again. That's a lie. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is this will help a lot. It will bring some accountability. It will bring some structure to protect you. So, so, Mel, would you talk to the guys a little bit about why this is so damaging to a woman? Why, why a wife, when her husband gets caught and drawn into lust, why does this hurt her so bad? Well, I just want to say that Troy does have X3 Watch on his computer, his laptop, his iPad, and his phone. And I do get reports every week, you know, if there is any questionable websites. And there hasn't. And this isn't something that he is dealing with now. But it gives me great peace of mind to know that he's not looking at it. And just like we've been talking about in this series, you know, we're playing offense. You know, we're not playing defense. We're not playing from behind. Um, But if I had found out that Troy, you know, went to a strip club or he was looking at a porn online or in magazines or if he was checking out a girl at the gym at the pool you know I'd be really insecure I'd you know come up with so many reasons why I'm not good enough and it would destroy my trust with him 
But I don't think this issue is just for men only. I know with 100% certainty that, you know, a lot of women deal with this too. And it comes in different forms. And I think, ladies, you know what I'm talking about. There's a lot of things in the media that are uh, directed and targeted to women right now. And you know what I'm talking about. They're Magic Mike. I know the second movie's coming out. And Fifty Shades of Grey, the book turned into a movie, and it's coming out on DVD. And there's just a lot of things that are directed to women, and they're not okay. And I think I have Christian friends who go to church every Sunday, and they tell me, Melody, it's, it's fine. I took my husband with me. Like, somehow that's justifying that it's okay. Or they say, it's just entertainment. But just because something's just entertainment doesn't make, you know, it okay. Porn is just entertainment, too. So we have one last intimacy Amen. killer for you. And it springs out of a lot of these others, and it's this, unforgiveness. And I heard this quote oh, a few years ago, and it's, a great marriage is made up of two great forgivers. And I really believe that, and that's why I think we all need to work on being good forgivers. And I know, like I said earlier, I'm like a bad forgiver. It takes me a, a while. There's like a long process I have to go through. So, Amen. <laughs> so don't mess with me, I think is what I'm saying. <laughs> Just kidding. And Troy, he, you know, you could punch him in the face right now, and it, you say, I'm sorry, and he would forgive you, and he would never hold it over you, and that's why it's great to be married to him, but I just want to give you she a She punches quick me <laughs> in the face a lot. <laughs> I haven't tried it out, but, but um, just to give you a quick example, Troy and I love to play racquetball at the gym, and if you don't know what racquetball is, it's, it's similar to tennis and handball, but basically you're in a big room that's like a big box and you're hitting a ball with a racket against the front wall and you're trying to score on your opponent and Troy was ahead in this one particular game like he usually is he always beats me and there was this um as it should be (laughs) there, there was this opportunity where I had to make this like a great shot and I gave it everything I had like I just remember like man I'm gonna get Troy on this one and I hit him square in the back like as hard as I could And I've been working out. (laughs) I've been working out, so I'm pretty strong, and I had a good hit. (laughs) Uh, And Troy just turned around. You could tell he was in a lot of pain, and uh, I just said, I am so sorry. I am so sorry. I am so sorry. And he's just like, it's okay. He said, you're forgiven. And you know what? It sounds small, but he meant it. He didn't hold it over me. You know, he didn't bring it up later in, like, a joking context. And I know if he would have done it for me, you know, we still would have been talking about (laughs) You know, even if I said I had forgiven him, you know, I probably would have made some jokes about it. And, you know, it it really wouldn't have been forgiveness. But if you're harboring unforgiveness, it will destroy your intimacy and eventually your marriage. That's right. That's why Ephesians 4.26 says so famously, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And, again, this is not specifically in the marriage context. This is for all of us. Uh, But specifically if you are married, man, it's so important. Marriage, again, we remember, marriage is a reflection of our relationship with Jesus. At its core, that's what marriage is. And what is the foundation of our, of our relationship with Jesus? Forgiveness. That's what gets us in, that we allow God to forgive us, that he extends it to us freely, not because we deserve it, not because we're never going to mess up again, not because we're never going to hurt him, but simply because he loves us. And so when we harbor unforgiveness, what we're really doing is we're, we're going against the very fabric of what marriage is. We're denying the very fabric of relationship. Can I just tell you straight up, your spouse is going to hurt you. Like just if, don't get married if you don't want to get hurt. 
Because your spouse is going to hurt you, and you're going to hurt them. And it's normal, and it's, it's not okay, and that, well, don't worry about it. Work on it. But it's going to happen. Uh, and we've got to learn to have a posture of forgiveness. We've got to learn to have a marriage full of grace. So Song of Solomon 2.15, just want to read it to you one more time. It says, catch for us the foxes, the little foxes that ruin the vineyards, our vineyards that are in bloom. We've laid out for you six foxes. Six intimacy killers, six little foxes that just kind of sneak into the garden, sneak under the fence, sneak in under the radar, out of sight. We don't think they're a big deal, but they begin to gnaw away at the fabric of the vineyard, the fabric of our relationship. I'm sure there's plenty of others. So when you realize that you've got one of these foxes, when you realize that you, maybe you've got a different fox creeping in to your intimacy, what do you do? How do you fox-proof your marriage? Well, we want to give you just a couple simple steps as we wrap up the message today. What can you do if one of these is you? And chances are everybody in this room has one of these foxes in their marriage and probably one that's caused by you. So when you realize that, how do you handle it? Well, the first simple thing you got to do is you got to identify the fox. I have the fox of unforgiveness. I have the fox of lust. I have the fox of, of whatever it might be. You've got to identify that, recognize it, uh, and if you're going to be able to fix it. And the second step is to confess the fox. So first go to God and repent. Just say, Lord, I am sorry for X, Y, and Z. And then go to your spouse and tell them what's going on. And this is going to be the hard part because you're going to have to humble yourself and tell them what's wrong. And it's just going to be tough. So you identify it first, you confess it second, and lastly, address the fox. How do we, how do we address it? Well, here's a few things you can do. Number one, get some accountability. Uh, find somebody, again, same gender, somebody you can go to that you can just share, hey, I'm struggling with, with unrealistic expectations. I'm struggling with selfishness. I'm struggling with a child-centered home. Whatever it might be, find somebody you can be accountable to. Uh, man, that may be your city group leader. Uh, Great plug for city groups right there. If you don't have a city group, find one because we've got some awesome groups. We've got a list of them out at the Connection Center. Uh, get plugged in. Maybe an elder. We've got some amazing elders here at City Church, uh, a ministry director. Um, but don't sugarcoat it. Don't minimize it. If you've got a porn addiction, don't go to somebody and be like, yeah, uh, I look at porn once every couple of months. Like, don't, don't make it out to be something it's not. Be honest about what it is. Don't minimize it. Um, Next, seek counsel. Maybe you need more than just accountability. Maybe if this is something you've been dealing with for an extended period of time, if this is something that, that goes back even before your marriage, um, that, that you see evident in your life, if you're going to be honest, man, I've been walking in, in unforgiveness for, for 20 years. This is something that's really been hard for me for a long time. You might need to not just get some accountability, but get some counsel. Sit down with a marriage counselor. Uh, sit down with somebody that you can share with. Um, if, if you can, go with your spouse. Get them involved too. If your spouse is resistant and they're not going to go, go without them. But get some counsel. Let somebody professional speak into your life, speak into your situation. And then set up boundaries with your spouse. Proverbs says, where there is no vision, people perish. And I believe this is 100% true with our marriages as well. We have to set up plans with your spouse saying things that, you know, maybe you don't like. You know, like an example would be like Troy saying he's going to go to bed with me early, you know, five nights a week. And the other night he has 662, and the other night because he's hanging out with his guy friends. Ultimately, just do whatever it takes. Don't let the little fox linger. Don't justify it. Don't say, oh, well, it's not that big of a deal. Oh, well, most marriages deal with bigger problems than this. Yes, most marriages do deal with bigger problems probably than your little fox. But if you let it linger, your fox is going to grow, and it's going to become a bigger problem. Why does Solomon say catch for us the little foxes that ruin the vineyards? Because that's how they start. They start little. They start small. Deal with it now. If it's small, that's the perfect time to deal with it. 
Man, this is, it's going to make your life so much easier and so much better if you handle it now. Ultimately, again, remember grace. Remember that God loves you, that God forgives, that just because you're in the middle of something right now doesn't mean God can't deliver you out of it, but he's not going to deliver you out of it if you don't go to battle, if you don't go to war, if you don't address it, confess it, and begin to start to fix it. Uh, So let's play offense. Let's not just wait for our marriages to fall apart and then go get marriage counseling after your wife's moved out. Get it now. Play offense, begin to protect your marriage uh, at this point, not just when things fall apart. So as we wrap up today, let's go ahead and pray.